0: Uh, for the rest of you, let's open up our Bibles uh, to Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. I find uh, it always when we end a, a book series bittersweet. I'm excited what's next. As we're going to study the Gospel of Matthew. But also, I've grown very attached to First and Second Samuel since we've been going through it uh, for so long. So, so that's where we are. We are at Second Samuel chapter 24. Uh, we'll be going through the whole passage today. But before we get started, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time. Uh, God, we come before you right now, uh, and as always, we need you to give divine light unless you uh, step in and, and, and intervene in these times. Uh, our work is uh, done in vain. So we pray, God, that you would meet with us. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to understand why this chapter is even in the Bible. Ultimately, how this is pointing towards a, a better king, one that will never disappoint. Uh, it's all about Jesus. So we pray in his precious and perfect and holy name. Amen. All right, have you ever been disappointed? Nod your head yes if you've been disappointed. I should be seeing everybody nod their head because, as it is, someone or something ever not lived up to expectations. I mean, the older you get, life is filled with disappointments, is it not? You didn't get the promotion, you didn't get the job. You didn't get into that school. You didn't get that scholarship. It's not uncommon for the guy to not get the girl. The girl to not get the guy. Or they got the girl or the guy and then the relationship ends from the one person's point of view prematurely. Hopes and dreams don't come to fruition. Our sports teams, I can identify with this, they let you down. Life is filled with those kind of disappointments. Our expectations are often not met in this world. People and circumstances disappoint. What we hoped would happen and what really happened often do not match up. So as we wrap up our study in 2 Samuel, we are confronted once again by disappointment. We are disappointed by David. David. What started so strong early on in 1 Samuel with David that maybe this time it's going to be right, maybe this king is going to be better and, and, and is going to actually be the king that God's people need, we're left longing for someone better. Uh, David simply has not delivered as we had hoped for. So that's what we're going to see, the disappointment of David and the longing for a better king. If you're a note taker, uh, we're going to look at really three movements in the chapter. Uh, We're going to begin our time. We're going to see David's sin, the census uh, that David ends up conducting, and why is it a big deal? Why is it sin? What is the whole fuss about? Secondly, we're going to look at the Lord's judgment. We're going to see God convict David, but then ultimately, uh, God is going to judge David and Israel for David's sin. And then we'll wrap up. We'll conclude our time with David's altar. We're going to see David responds to God in obedience. He, he pleads ultimately for forgiveness for himself and for the Israelites. And at the end, God relents on the plague that he is bringing down upon his people. So let's begin as we see David's sin. As I mentioned, this is the final sermon from one book, really. First and Second Samuel, as we looked at a long time ago, it's a cohesive book that, in more recent times, it was divided up as a First Samuel, Second Samuel, and where we're at in the last four chapters. If you remember, we call it the epilogue. It's wrapping up the book. It's not chronological at that point. There's kind of bits and pieces. I, I talked a little bit about Hebrew, how it's a chiastic structure, and this. Companion passage was our first part of the epilogue. We saw Saul's sin. Now we're going to see David's sin. And once again, sin is still a problem. So as we zoom in on David's epic failure, I want us to first of all see the reason for the census. All right, chapter 24, verse 1. Read with me. It says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Instantly, we are left with some confusion. We are left with a little bit of a mystery, a little bit of what is going on. Because if you know the chapter at all, it says that the Lord just incited him to conduct a census. And then guess what David is going to get in trouble for? He conducts So what? So like, what is going on? It's kind of like, this is a mystery. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of mysteries. And I'm not talking about like murder mysteries. I just, I don't like when I don't understand what's going on. I had a mystery at the Y a while back. And it confused me forever. So in the children's church room where the children are right now, and they're doing children's church, uh, there's a video usually that goes with the gospel project. So they watch it on the TV, and in that TV room, we have a remote control. For about a month and a half, every week, the remote control disappeared. It was magic. Didn't understand it. So between Adam and I, we bought five, maybe six remotes. And the next week, it's gone. And I'm like, like and I'm thinking, like, this, so, there's a weirdo at the Y who likes stealing remote controls. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand. I mention it about six weeks in to Steve, who's the director here, as he's in his office. And he turns, he opens up his cabinet, and he has six remotes there. He was, he, it was a mystery to him why there kept being another remote in the room. And I was wondering where the remotes were going. It's one of those ones I just did not understand. Well, this passage is one of those—it's it, it, confusing because here is the problem— here is the problem. There is a companion verse to this. So remember what we read. I want to read it again, because this is where it gets all fun. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, Yahweh, incited David against him, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. First Chronicles 21.1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. What is going on? Is David the re- is God the reason? Is it Yahweh? Is it Satan? What is going on? Why is he going to rebuke David for doing something that it seems that God led him to do? Who is it? I, I think this is the, the, the breakdown of what's going on. First of all, if you look in the beginning where it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel... That means that God is currently in a a relationship with Israel where he he is frowning upon them. He's angry at them. And as we've seen in 1 and 2 Samuel, what is the main reason usually why God is angry with Israel? Starts with an I, ends with a Y. What is it? Idolatry. They're consistently worshiping other gods. So he's angry at them. So then what appears to happen is he allows Satan to tempt David. Samuel doesn't give the the secondary cause of of Satan. Uh, He just says, hey, the Lord led him to do this. But with Chronicles, it seems like God allows Satan to tempt David in order to punish Israel through David's sin. As the leader goes, so goes the nation uh, we, we also need to remember scripture, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this seems to be one of those God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Uh, Job 1.12 If you remember the story of Job, it says, behold, God is speaking to Satan. All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And then what we see from there is Satan is able to wreak a lot of havoc on Job, but it's God that is permitting it. So what we need to see in this chapter, what is happening and what goes down is it is God allowing Satan to tempt him, which will then lead to judgment on Israel and judgment on David. But at the end of the day, God is not responsible for sin. God is not the one tempting because he doesn't do that. But there is that mystery. And, and I think kind of big picture when we think of this, God doesn't always make everything neat and easy for us to understand. I we need to be okay, that it seems like, whoa, 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 but God tells him, but then Satan tells him, and it's like, yeah, and God, notice, if we go right on to the second verse, God doesn't give an explanation, he's like, there's not like a little parenthesis, like, well, here's what's really going on, it's really Satan, but I'm letting him, and God doesn't have to explain, well, does it bother you that God's ways are not always understandable? Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says the mysterious things of God are of God. And I and I, I constantly because as a pastor shepherding God's people, as a as a preacher who preaches from the word on a consistent basis, there are times where I just don't understand. And I, I know that sounds like a crutch, I know it sounds like an excuse, but that's just reality. We're finite, God's infinite, we need to be okay with that. then we can trust God in his dealings. So that's the reason for the census. But then secondly, we see the wrongness in the census. Read verse 2 with me. He goes on and says, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my lord, the king, still see it. But why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing. But the king's words prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. From Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyra and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Gav of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now if you've read ahead, if you've looked at some of the corresponding Chronicles passage. There are some conflicts with numbers. Once again, not a reason to disregard the Bible as the authoritative word of God, for it is truly uh, without error. Uh, It appears in Chronicles that he includes the current army as a part of the number and Samuel does not also there seems to be some rounding going on but what's the problem in this census why is God so upset with David it's not actually the first time he does do a census in the book of numbers it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal why is God upset and then and I think in this the other thing before we actually look at the reasons why God gives David an out do you notice that What's the out for him on the census? Who? Joab. Joab. And it isn't ironic, if you remember Joab, is he a good guy? Dads, is he the guy that you want your daughter bringing home? He is a ruthless killing machine. He is selfish. He, and like, he is the one saying, David, are you, are you sure... Uh, about this. Listen to what he says. Why does my Lord, the King, delight in this thing? So even those words, we're starting to see the sin problem in it. Can you think of a book in the Bible where delight with the eyes leads to devastating problems? What book? Genesis. Genesis 3.6. When the woman, when Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what did she end up doing? She ate, gave to Adam, Adam ate, sin enters into the world, everything is is, is changed. So it seems like there's, there's something going on with heart issues with David. Uh, there's a delight problem. And that even Joab, who is as sinful and as ruthless of a character in the book of First and Second Samuel, he's saying, David, are, are, you, are you sure about this? Uh, 1 Chronicles 21.3, he also says, Are they not my lord, the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? So he sees that this is going to be a problem with God. And I think it's multifaceted. I don't know if we can narrow down the cause of why God is angry completely to one thing, but I think there's three main reasons in this passage. One, it's a sin of pride. It's a sin of pride, him doing the number. Does anybody know Doogie Lish Sandtiger? True name. Doogie Lish Sandtiger. Came across him a few weeks back. Didn't meet him personally. Saw him in a news story. He collects crocs. Not like the animal, he collects the rubber shoe. Anybody a wearing Crocs today? Anybody? Anybody not embarrassed? to? So look right there, Jeff Abel is our Croc guy. Jeff is not this guy though, I don't think. This guy has 2,131 pairs of Crocs. That's a whole lot of money and a whole lot of weirdness. He's collected all of these, and when he's talking about them, he, he glowed. It was hilarious. Like, he just, he loves these things. He just smiled. He, he's so proud, like, like, this is my precious. This is my baby. Look at my, my shoes. I think what we see part of the problem with what David is doing is he's looking out at the kingdom. He's looking out at the numbers, and he's starting to pat himself on the back. He's starting to feel pretty good. He's starting to follow in that Daniel four thirty. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? Is this not the great Babylon which I built for my mighty power, royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? I think the danger what we see with David right here as people who he has been called. You remember there was a twofold responsibility for him as king: shepherd my people. I want you to protect them from their enemies, and I want you to rule them. That these people are precious. That you're, they're sheep to you and you're the shepherd. And now they have become what? They become possessions to David. They become a sense of his status as king. And God's not going to share glory with David. That kingdom that you remember when even in the previous chapter and two, when he talked, he said, who raised him up? God raised him up. And now in this passage, I think David's starting to feel like, I, I, look at what I've done. Second sin I think we see is self sufficiency. David's safety and confidence seems to be resting in the number of people in his, his, his nation. Why? What would those people be able to be in battle? Soldiers, an army. Psalm 20 verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And what seems to be happening with David is he is starting to trust in horses and chariots. He's starting to feel a little bit confident because look at my big army that I have. And not just self-sufficiency, I think there's a sin of independence that he's probably, we don't know this fully, there's a good chance he's planning and plotting out some future military conquests. Without God's guidance, without God's wisdom, without seeking God's face, should I go this way? Should I go that way? I think he's starting to prepare, well, I've got this many people. I can spare this many people. I can send people there. I think we're reminded where the Scripture seats, unless the Lord builds his labors, labor in vain. So I think we need to ask ourselves, do you take your successes and your blessings do you take credit for them? When somebody compliments you, are you quick to, to put the compliment back on the Lord? Or do you do you kind of shake your head and say, Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty awesome? You might not say it, but you know if you're thinking it. Do you trust in yourself or the Lord? I mean, where is your confidence? Is it how much money you have in your bank account? The stability of your job? Uh, your friends, your family, all of that stuff? Like what, where is your hope lie? What if those things are all stripped from you? Do you still have confidence? Do you still have assurance? And when's the last time that you sought the Lord for counsel and wisdom? So we see David's sin. We see the reason for the census. We see the wrongness in the census. Let's now look at the Lord's judgment. Uh, there's now going to be consequences for David. God judges our disobedience. He judges our defiance. Uh, God, who we love to say is a God of love, he is also a God of wrath. And we're going to see some of it in our passage. So let's read verse 10. It says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Congenital insensitivity to pain. It is a condition that inhibits the ability to perceive physical pain. There's, a, there's a, a problem between our nerves and our brain with people that suffer from this. So what will happen is they will touch things and be unaware that it's burning them. Uh, they will drink things and have no idea that they're scalding their throat and their mouth. And it will cause major problems. That there is, there's a blessing, physically speaking, that you and I feel pain. It's a good thing that when you touch something hot, you're like, oh, need to move my hand. Start to drink something. You're like, oh, I need to stop and wait till it cools down. Well, I, I think there's a danger... Amongst us, even as Christians, to have an insensitivity to sin, that there's no conviction. And we've already seen a really bad example of David with conviction of sin, have we not? I mean, obviously, the big one. What's the big one? What's her name? Bathsheba commits adultery, gets her pregnant, has Uriah killed the baby's delivered, and he still hasn't confessed any sins. It's not till Nathan, the prophet, tells him a story and says, you're that man that finally there's some conviction. So we see here, David starts having some conviction. Now mind you, it's still over a long period of time again, David, but at least nobody has to tell David he sinned. He ends up having conviction. It's really what the Holy Spirit does. John 16, 8, it says, and when he comes, speaking of the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's our hope, friends. As men and women who follow Christ, God gives us conviction. Second, Second Corinthians seven nine. It says, "As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repentance, and that's the important thing." So, so please don't sear the conscience in your life when you start feeling guilty. See, our country and our culture and our our society says, "Don't feel bad. You be you." That's not the Bible. That's not God's word. So when you start knowing that you're doing something that doesn't line up with the word of God, and there's a conviction, there is a heart striking, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But notice it doesn't just stop with guilt and shame. And that's what Corinthians talks about. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow doesn't. Because you might feel bad because of your sin. You might feel bad because of the consequences of your sin. You might feel bad because people know about your sin. But godly sorrow, spirit-led conviction, is I've sinned against God and I want it to change. And that's what he speaks of here. To confess. And notice what he does. He confesses. David owns his sin. He says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done this very foolishly. This is a better David, is it not? He doesn't need a Nathan this time around. He doesn't doesn't do any excuses. Isn't that awesome about David? He doesn't blame God. Well, you incited me. He doesn't blame Satan. Well, Satan tempted me. He, He doesn't. I mean, that's what they did in the garden. Adam and Eve, they sin. God confronts them. Adam does what? Who does he blame? Two people, actually. He blames God. That woman you gave, should have thought about that, God. If you didn't bring her, I wouldn't have done this. Then he talks to her, and what does she say? It was the serpent's fault. Like, blame, blame, blame. David, he owns. I mean, and I think what we see in this is, a, is an anatomy of, of biblical convec- confession and conviction. That we have conviction. We acknowledge it before God. We confess it to the Lord even though it's a disappointment, Psalm fifty one four against you, you only have a sin and done what is evil in your sight. It's this humble disposition of being uh, uh, making a mistake. So I have to ask, when's the last time your heart was struck with conviction over sin? Think about it. I want you to, right now. Think about when is the last time you're like, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that." Did you confess it before God? First John 1.9, if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. You own your sin. You make excuses for your sin. I think one of the greatest signs of Christian maturity is somebody who owns their sin. Dads, you want to set an example to your children when you sin, let them know. Confess it. Say, I'm sorry I acted that way. I'm sorry I said that. Sorry I did that. So we see not only the heart conviction David is given a hard choice. Read verse 11 with me. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. David's seer saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer to you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide when answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord set a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Besheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done what is done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Notice first of all the dilemma The choice that David makes you probably come across it maybe online you've heard it before would you rather and there'll be sometimes ridiculous questions would you be rather would you rather be trapped in a room filled with spiders or would you rather be filled with snakes I'm like neither right would you rather be chased down in water by a shark or would you rather be on land being ran down by a cheetah what's your choice once again, neither. Sometimes there's even like really morbid, would you rather die by being burnt or being drowned? I'm like, neither, right? That's kind of like David's dilemma. God's like, here's here, judgment is happening, David, because of your sin. But I'm going to make it easy on you. I'm going to give you three options. What's it going to be? One is going to be a longer duration. It's going to be a famine, three years. Another one, I'm going to have people chase you for three months. He's done that before, right? Or, very short season, I'm going to have a three days pestilence on your land. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, it says God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil, and God is judging Israel. God is judging David, and he gives him these options. And and in his response, it appears that he rules out which option? Option number what? Look at verse 14. Option number two, he says, "Eh, don't let me fall into the hand of the Lord. It's like, I don't want that. So God, I'm going to let you decide with the two remaining. Either you can do the famine or you can do the pestilence. Just don't let me uh, be in the hands of people. Now, part of that answer seems good. Why? Because he seems to be resting in God, as he says in verse 14. His mercy is great. We're falling into the hands of Yahweh kind of Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast of the Lord. It never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He's like, God is in the habit. We sang it already this morning, right? His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. He knows God is often in the habit of not giving him what he deserves. So he's resting in that. But I think there's some wrongness to his initial response. Why? Because his choice has a selfish bent. Of the three judgments, which one directly impacted him the most? Number two. You get to go on the the hiding tour for three more months. And David's like, yeah, I'll pass on that. I would rather you judge the land and impact a bunch of other people than directly judge me. And think about that. Because of David's choice, 70,000. I mean, do we have any grasp of how many people that is? I mean, 70,000. I think the metropolitan area varies in numbers, maybe somewhere in 340, 350, and we're talking about suburbia. So think of a fifth of our population dead in three days. And that was because of David, because of his sin, and also even his, his judgment, that he's selfish, But then notice the change even in the passage. And this, I think, is some encouragement. He gets to verse 17, and he's like, I've sinned. These sheep, what have they done? Now, we know they've done stuff. God is angry at them for their idolatry. But David, he's like, stop judging everybody else. Instead, judge me. Let me be the substitute. You're starting to hear the gospel in this? Against me and against my father's house. Second Corinthians five twenty one, for our sake. Isn't that what Jesus did? He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What do you see? First of all, the certainty of God's wrath and judgment upon sin and sinners. Here's the reality, though. God doesn't give us that choice. Here's God's choice: turn to Christ. Be forgiven, spend eternity with God, or don't turn to Jesus and experience wrath and condemnation for all eternity in hell. Those are your choices. There's not different punishments that God offers. Are you resting, though, on his mercy, on his grace? You see your need for somebody to step in on your behalf. So we see David's sin, the reason for the census, census, the wrongness in the census. We see the Lord's judgment, the heart conviction, the heart choice. Uh, Let's uh, conclude our time as we see David's altar. Yahweh now calls him to build an altar. Uh, Notice David's obedience. Read verse 18. It says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna uh, looked down. He saw the king and his servants came coming on toward him. And Arunah went out. He paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant, David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people? Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take an offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sludges, and the yokes of the oxen uh, for the wood. All this, O King Aruna, gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, "May the Lord your God accept you." But the king said to Aruna, "No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing." So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. First of all, David is compliant. He has reason to celebrate. He, he, we see this act of obedience here that he, he listens. You maybe have seen like a cliche billboard where it says it's not the 10 suggestions. And what's the reference to? The 10 commandments. And the idea that God commands us to do something so that we will respond and obey accordingly. Jesus, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, you obey. And we see David, he, he does it. He, 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 God tells him, go build an altar. David says, fine, I will do it. This, this character, Arona, he's humbled the kings there. He says, you can just have it. We've seen that elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 23 is an example. Abraham wants to buy a cave. They're like, no, just take the cave. And, and, and Abraham's like, no, I, I want to buy the cave. The guy ends up giving in. He ends up buying the cave. We need to understand, David is not being ungrateful. But David understands something about the sacrifice that he's about to make. It has to be costly. I want to ask a, a very controversial question. Have you ever re-gifted something? Anybody? Did you feel guilty on the re-gift? Were you afraid somebody would find out about the re-gift? That's the big thing, right? You're like, oh, I'm never going to use this. But then like, what if they ask like, hey, how do you like that? I'm like, it's amazing. Best gift ever. So much so that I got a friend it. they have the thing too. We keep ours safe and hidden because we don't want anything to happen to it. You see, David refuses to be re-gifting. He sees something wrong in this idea that I'm going to get this field for free, they're going to give me all this stuff for free, and then I'm just going to offer it up to God. It's too easy. And praise the Lord. I mean, remember, 70,000 Israelites are dead because of David's sin. He's not going to pick the easy path to offer up to God. Now, is 50 shekels a big deal to the king of Israel? No. No but there's a principle behind it that he's going to sacrifice that this is going to be costly can you think of another sacrifice that was a little costly john 3 16 right for god so loved the world that he gave his what only son there's not a bunch of multiple eternal sons of God out there and he picked one of them to sacrifice. No, he picked the one and only that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, God wants men and women and children who are, who are sacrificial in our devotion to them that are, are willing to, to give in order uh, to offer up to God even when it's painful, Think about it. I think, I think we, because we, we tend to be selfish, I'll speak for myself, we like to give out of abundance. Well, I have a little extra time here. I'll give it to the Lord. I got a little extra money here. I'll give it to the Lord. No, you remember in, in, in the Gospels where the elderly woman is, at, is offering up like a, a, basically a nickel, and God looks at that, and he says she gave everything she had. But then the, the, the tax or the, the person who had wealth, hands in a little bit more, but it's nothing because it's no sacrifice. And we don't understand that, that, that our worship of God should be sacrificial. It should. Your time, energy, resources. You could be sleeping right now, and I'm not going to apologize for that because it should cost you. Your faith should not be easy. God is is invested so much in Christ. Like, you can put forth some effort for the sake of Jesus. Not because you're earning favor, but it's a natural overflow of our worship of him. I think the other thing that we do need to see in the midst of all of this is that there needs to be a substitute. Because he's building the altar. Why? So that he can put offerings on the altar. Specifically, it's going to be oxen. Why does that matter? Because what, as you look at the sacrificial system in the Bible, what was being sacrificed was being done instead of who being sacrificed? The people. That God's going to alleviate this particular plague and the dying. Hebrews 9.22, under the law, everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So even in the midst of David's obedience and building the altar, we start seeing the gospel. Are you obedient to God's command? Are you sacrificial in your following of the Lord? And ultimately, do you see your need for atonement? So we see David's obedience. Next, we see God's uh, response. God's response. Uh, Notice verse 18 and verse 25. It says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Why is that location significant? Do locations have any meaning in the Bible? Just do they? Does it matter? Is is it just a random tidbit of information that God— No, the Bible is— intentional on that. God is intentional. Uh, Locations trigger memories, do they not? I had to uh, mail back a bunch of prom dresses uh, this week that did not meet the cut, and I had to go to UPS. I spent 13 years working in UPS. I had to go into the front office area where you hand on the things. One of my main jobs there was picking out packages for people like you, and I had to bring them out to that building. So when I went into that room, it just triggered a whole slew of emotions. Because as I look back at those 13 years, that job oh my goodness, could drive me insane. it tested. A few things have sanctified me more than working at UPS. But it also God used it mightily to provide for my family, It gave me ministry opportunities. There's a few people here I met through UPS who attend Covenant. So, like, praise the Lord for it. But also, as I'm there, as I look, it's almost—it'll be five years this summer since I've, I'm just at the church. So that—seeing that, driving through that parking lot that—I had so many memories. It, like, it got a little emotional for me. And you see this—this this location is emotional producing. Why? First of all, Genesis 22:2, 2 there was another sacrifice offered here. Same location. Take your son, your only son, Isaac— whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. And this is the same general location. So a substitute took place here. So this is a significant location. But also there's another, later on, so after this, this is significant for us as the Bible readers, Second uh, Chronicles 3.1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. That is a variation in Hebrew of the same name for Aruna. So it's a place where substitution took place. It's a place where sacrifice took place and it's likely very near to the place where Jesus Christ was crucified near Golgotha. So I think it's important to see this location and and the significance because I think it's why it's there. It's it's drawing attention to a greater sacrifice, a greater king. But also notice the response. Read verse twenty five. David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea from the land for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. That God responded, that the debt was paid. That no more was judgment needed in this moment for God's people. I mean, when we go to the store and we buy something, once it's paid, we're able to take. The transaction is complete. And that's what's going on here. It's the language, once again, of atonement to satisfy the justified grievance. That it was the oxen that were killed instead of the Israelites. It's Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And notice all of this is rooted in what? Grace and mercy. Does David deserve any of this? Does Israel deserve any of this? You see what God's communicating in this? What do we learn about God? What do we glean from God's relenting of judgment? That God is a just God, but He was also a gracious and compassionate, forgiving God. What is the worst ending of a story, book, TV show, movie that you've ever seen? Or read? Do you have some in your mind? The guy doesn't get the girl. The couple that you think is going to end up together, they don't end up together. Are you serious? How about the story where everybody dies? That's a great one, right? Yeah, I mean, everybody loves Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet. Kind of a terrible ending. Spoiler alert, if you don't know about Romeo and Juliet. I think we started our time in first Samuel with Israel in chaos. Everyone did what was right in, our own, in their own eyes. And the people say, you know what the problem is? We need a king. God, if you give us a king, that will fix the problem. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king just like the world. So he gives him Saul. Problem fixed, right? Not even close. But then in the midst of all of that, God's like, I'm going to give you a different king. I'm going to give you a king after mine own heart, and as we start reading that, let's be honest: are we not a little optimistic? So it was—it was not that it's not the king thing's a bad deal, but they just need a better king. They need a king like God. So well, Dave, this, David will fix the problem, right? And he did, didn't he? <clears throat> right, he didn't fix the problem. David ends up being a, a hot mess just look at this chapter i mean think about it the end of second samuel first and second samuel ends on save on david's sin so why is this in the closing of the book i think two thoughts and we'll we'll wrap up our time one to long for a better king don't be confused david is not the end of the story right He's not the end of kings. He's flawed. He ends on a bang with yet another sin. I think when we're left at the end of this book, it's like, man, will there ever be a king who is good and gracious? Will there ever be a better king? And we know the answer to that, do we not? Not only a long for the better king, but I think the second reason in the midst of all of this, it's not just a David's disappointment. It's the reality that we need someone to deal with our sin. In this, we see the gospel. We, we get a preview of what we need. That man will never fix the sin problem. Don't put your hope in people. Don't put your hope in leaders. Don't put your hope in anybody besides Jesus Christ. There will be one from David's line who will finally deal with the sin. He's going to be a better king. He's going to be a better prophet. He's going to be a better priest. We will have one whose father's hand will be against him. And that's really the heart of it. Where David, in the best of David in this chapter, he says, What have these sheep done? Deal with me. And that's what our Savior has done. Even though what we've done as sheep is worthy of wrath, worthy of judgment, and yet Jesus steps in front of us and says, I want you to deal with me. Spare them. And that's the hope of this book. It's not about David. It's not about Saul. It's about Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who came, died on the cross, brought redemption for us, and guess what? That king, he's a coming back. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now, and we acknowledge our need of Jesus. We thank you for the encouragement of the gospel of, of Christ. We pray even right now That is, we respond through worship, that we would just not go through the motions, that we would not just sing a few words, uh, but God, that it would uh, be the overflow of our heart as we consider our great and, and glorious King. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.